Training doctors and other healthcare providers has come a long way from the decades-old practice of using cadavers. It's called medical simulation, which uses advances in technology to create lifelike dummies that could improve medical care and potentially reduce medical errors. Welcome to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and with me today is Dr. Steve Dawson. He's the chair of Advanced Initiatives in Medical Simulation and program leader for the Simulation Group. Dr. Dawson is an interventional radiologist on the staff at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and holds faculty appointments as associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Steve Dawson, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks very much, Bruce. Well, Dr. Dawson joins us today from his offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And if you could, doctor, just give us a description, if you will, of medical simulation, because I think one of the issues before us in the medical community and the consumers at large is people generally don't know what it is. Yeah, I think that's probably an accurate statement. There's a small group of people who have been using simulation for about 15 years now to do different types of training in medicine from anesthesia and OBGYN type training through procedural training to develop skills, manual skills. And in general, uh, I think probably the best definition that I've heard is that simulation creates a device that will enable a novice to obtain a clear concept of the workings of whatever they're trying to do without any risk to a person or anything else. And interestingly enough, that definition was written in 1910, and it pertained to flight simulation. And it was what began this whole idea that pilots train on simulators to a very high degree of proficiency before they fly the real planes. And that concept that was expressed in 1910 about creating a system that lets you practice without putting anybody at risk, either yourself or the patient in our case, really gives an overview of what simulation can be. So if you think about simulation as its bottom-level techniques, it's things like tabletop interactive CDs where you're presented with a case and you have to describe what you would do next and you get observed, or in some cases it's used as a test. That's a way of simulating medical care, patient care. And then you can move up the ranks to more sophisticated systems that will teach you either individual skills or combinations of skills on a simulator, and then to other types of systems that are like mannequin systems that we don't call them dummies, we call them mannequins, but mannequins that allow people to train as a team so that a group that would be working together can practice critical crises in a team, in a simulator, and then debrief and understand what they did well and what they might not have done so well and need to work on. So it's basically a way to get away from that old saw of see one, do one, teach one from Osler's days and bring it up to date with see one, practice many, then go out and do one. So tell me, who is doing a lot of this now? I mean, you said that it is something that is not prevalent at teaching hospitals, or just tell me how widespread it is used and who are some of the facilities. Certainly, you're doing it at Massachusetts General, but is it largely in the teaching hospital setting? And if so, where could this go? It's actually interesting how widespread simulation is. The base units that can teach simple procedural things like starting an intravenous line, for instance, are very widely used. Many nursing schools and community colleges use them to train nurses 
paramedics train on these, and then right through to, as I was saying, teams of physicians with nurses with ancillary personnel. The best numbers that are available are that there's over 600 simulation centers worldwide. There's really been a growth in the last three or four years, and that it's a procedural way of learning and a team training way of learning that as it gets tried is showing real benefits and real accumulation of knowledge that wasn't able to be obtained any other way. Some of the specialties that are furthest along are anesthesia and obstetrics and places where they teach high-risk obstetrical delivery, use simulation to be able to get through some of the more difficult maneuvers that have to be trained so that we're seeing it across the levels from beginning levels with paramedics. In fact, many of the listeners, I'm sure, have gone through basic life support courses where they learn CPR. And in CPR courses, we used to use a dummy mannequin called Rasasi Annie, and that's a basic simulator. Annie, Annie, are you okay? I think I even did that when I was in Boy Scouts. Right. That's exactly it. That's a form of simulation. It's a way to learn CPR without having to have somebody to practice that in front of you. It seems like such a simple idea, too. And if you could, I mean, it would seem to have applications, you know, when you go into increasingly the robotic, you know, surgeries and the less invasive techniques where you actually have physicians out there that may not even be touching patients when they do procedures. Right. And certainly any type of surgery or any type of a procedure where you have some instrument between the actual operator, no matter what that person is, and the patient gives you the opportunity to insert in the middle of that loop some measurement equipment that lets you measure exactly what's being done by the operator and then what the result is in the patient. And that's a way of getting data, and from that data you can build more simulations. Surgery actually has taken on the challenge of creating laparoscopic training systems that can be used for high-stakes examination, and we can talk about that more in a little bit. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune. And join me today is Dr. Steve Dawson, who is involved in medical simulation. He's an interventional radiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is talking to us in his role as chair of the Advanced Initiatives in Medical Simulation, which is very fascinating. And we were just talking talking about applications to medical simulation. And Dr. Dawson, if you could, you had mentioned earlier where high-risk areas such as anesthesia or obstetrics, could you walk us through a situation that a physician in those areas might run into today that they are doing without simulation and perhaps how it could help if they did medical simulation? Sure. I think many physicians and medical professionals are aware of, in anesthesia, for instance, a condition called malignant hyperthermia, so that a patient can have this idiosyncratic, almost like an allergic response to anesthetics when they're administered and develop severe hyperthermia that can be fatal if it's not recognized and treated appropriately in the operating room. And it's one of the nightmares for anesthesiologists in training. And because we now have simulation, which for anesthesia has been used for nearly 20 years and was first developed at Stanford University with Dr. Gaba 
and here at, at Mass General with Dr. Cooper and Dr. Raymer. It's a way that systems have been developed that allows conditions, we call them scenarios in the simulation lab, where a scenario of malignant hyperthermia, for instance, can be acted out. Someone will control the mannequin and cause it to react in the way that an actual patient does as the anesthetic gases or anesthetic agents are administered. Once the trainee who is doing the scenario recognizes what's happening, they have to be able to respond very quickly and treat the malignant hyperthermia and break it and get the patient back to a stable hemodynamic state. All of that is, in most places, videotaped with multiple cameras and multiple microphones, and a record is made so that once the scenario, which can last 90 seconds or 30 minutes, depending on how the drivers of the system decide to drive it, then the whole team, the anesthesiologist, the surgeons, the nurses, everybody who's involved in that episode goes to a different room. The simulator can then be turned around and used again, but the important part is what happens in the other room when there's a debriefing and in a very non-confrontational and non-judgmental educational way, what happened during the scenario is reviewed and everybody can go through in their head, did I do the right thing then? What should I do if I'm ever confronted with that? And in that way, they can learn completely safely. And when such an example happens in the operating room, they have experience. In fact, in Boston, where I work, in the Harvard system, which contains the Harvard teaching hospitals here, for many years now, it's been required, it's a mandatory thing to maintain your appointment at the Harvard hospitals, that any anesthesiologist has to go through simulation every two years to maintain their skills, just like we have to go through life support, CPR, every two years to maintain our skills. In exchange for simulation training for anesthesiologists, the Harvard system gives them a discount on their malpractice. Now, because we've seen that, we can examine the malpractice rates and the suits, and we see that those anesthesiologists who have been trained actually are safer in their patient care, and there are fewer suits against people who have had simulation training. That was a very powerful argument for the use of simulation in these team training situations, and now that's spreading across the country. What should doctors look for, medical professionals look for? Are there certain companies, if they're on the hospital medical staff and they want to get into this, are there certain companies out there they should look for? Should they contact your association? How do they get involved in this if they're not already and they do have an interest? I think most hospitals deal with simulation through their educational branches because it's very commonly used in what we call graduate medical education, you know, the residency and fellowship training levels, so that it's usually the educational part of the hospital that manages simulation. There are many places, however, that have specific labs set up that do just one type of simulation, for instance, Cardiology and radiology may cooperate to have a simulator that trains in how to do high-risk procedures in the heart, in the body, in the neck, in the brain. And these are areas that are really coming up quickly as the new technologies in medicine are developed and new ways of treating stroke, for instance, are developed. 
As far as what to look for when you go to the hospital, you know, are they beginning to use simulation? This is a new field. It's only been around since the mid-90s. We're talking about simulation that's been around for 14 years. So it's going to take a while to change the hospital culture and the educational culture, but that's beginning. And there are several small companies, none of the companies are really very large, several small companies that make systems that can be used in the hospitals. Well, I would like to thank Dr. Steve Dawson, who has been our guest. We have been talking about a major change afoot in the healthcare field with medical professionals. The topic has been medical simulation. This is Bruce Japson of the Chicago Tribune. I would like to thank Dr. Dawson for joining us on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions about our show today through our website at ReachMD.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. And I would like to thank you today for listening.